Chapter 3, Part 1 of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Markgraf. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay, Volume 2, Chapter 3 the slow poisoners part one pescada the like was never read of stefano in my judgment to all that shall but hear it twill appear a most impossible fable pescada truth i tell you and briefly as i can by what degrees they fell into this madness duke of milan the atrocious system of poisoning by poisons so slow in their operation as to make the victim appear to ordinary observers as if dying from a gradual decay of nature has been practised in all ages those who are curious in the matter may refer to beckman on secret poisons in his history of inventions in which he has collected several instances of it from the greek and roman writers early in the sixteenth century the crime seems to have gradually increased till in the seventeenth it spread over europe like a pestilence it was often exercised by pretended witches and sorcerers and finally became a branch of education amongst all who laid any claim to magical and supernatural arts in the twenty-first year of henry the eighth an act was passed rendering it high treason those found guilty of it were to be boiled to death one of the first in point of date and hardly second to any in point of atrocity is the murder by this means of sir thomas overby which disgraced the court of james i in the year sixteen thirteen a slight sketch of it will be a fitting introduction to the history of the poisoning mania which was so prevalent in france and italy fifty years later robert kerr a scottish youth was early taken notice of by james i and loaded with honours for no other reason that the world could ever discover than the beauty of his person james even in his own day was suspected of being addicted to the most abominable of all offences and the more we examine his history now the stronger the suspicion becomes however that may be the handsome cur lending his smooth cheek even in public to the disgusting kisses of his royal master rose rapidly in favour in the year sixteen thirteen he was made lord high treasurer of scotland and created an english peer by the style and title of viscount rochester still further honours were in store for him in this rapid promotion he had not been without a friend sir thomas overby the king's secretary who appears for some threats in his own letters to have been no better than a pander to the vices of the king and privy to his dangerous secrets exerted all his backstair influence to forward the promotion of Kerr, by whom he was doubtless repaid in some way or other. Overby did not confine his friendship to this, if friendship ever could exist between two such men, but acted in the part of an entremetteur, and assisted Rochester to carry on an adulterous intrigue with the Lady Frances Howard, the wife of the Earl of Essex. This woman was a person of violent passions, and lost to all sense of shame her husband was in her way and to be freed from him she instituted proceedings for a divorce on grounds which a woman of any modesty or delicacy of feeling would die rather than avow her scandalous suit was successful and was no sooner decided than preparations on a scale of the greatest magnificence were made for her marriage with lord rochester 
Sir Thomas Overby, who had willingly assisted his patron to intrigue with the Countess of Essex, seems to have imagined that his marriage with so vile a woman might retard his advancement. He accordingly employed all his influence to dissuade him from it, but Rochester was bent on the match, and his passions were as violent as those of the Countess. On one occasion, when Overby and the Viscount were walking in the gallery of Whitehall, Overby was overheard to say, well my lord if you do marry that base woman you will utterly ruin your honour and yourself you shall never do it with my advice or consent and if you do you had best look to stand fast rochester flung from him in a rage exclaiming with an oath i will be even with you for this these words were the death warrant of the unfortunate overby he had mortally wounded the pride of rochester in insinuating that by his overby's means he might be lowered in the king's favour and he had endeavoured to curb the burning passions of a heartless dissolute and reckless man overby's imprudent remonstrances were reported to the countess and from that moment she also vowed the most deadly vengeance against him with a fiendish hypocrisy however they both concealed their intentions and overby at the solicitation of rochester was appointed ambassador to the court of russia this apparent favour was but the first step in a deep and deadly plot rochester pretending to be warmly attached to the interests of overby advised him to refuse the embassy which he said was but a trick to get him out of the way he promised at the same time to stand between him and any evil consequences which might result from his refusal overby fell into the snare and declined the embassy james offended immediately ordered his committal to the tower he was now in safe custody and his enemies had opportunity to commence the work of vengeance the first thing rochester did was to procure by his influence at court the dismissal of the lieutenant of the tower and the appointment of sir jarvis elwes one of his creatures to the vacant post this man was but one instrument and another being necessary was found in richard weston a fellow who had formerly been shopman to a druggist he was installed in the office of underkeeper and as such had the direct custody of overby so far all was favourable to the designs of the conspirators in the meantime the insidious rochester wrote the most friendly letters to overby requesting him to bear his ill fortune patiently and promising that his imprisonment should not be of long duration for that his friends were exerting themselves to soften the king's displeasure still pretending the extreme of sympathy for him he followed up the letters by presents of pastry and other delicacies which could not be procured in the tower these articles were all poisoned occasionally presents of a similar description were sent to sir jarvis elwes with the understanding that these articles were not poisoned when they were unaccompanied by letters of these the unfortunate prisoner never tasted a woman named turner who had formerly kept a house of ill fame and who had more than once lent it to further the guilty intercourse of rochester and lady essex was the agent employed to procure the poisons they were prepared by dr foreman a pretended fortune-teller of lambeth assisted by an apothecary named franklin both of these persons knew for what purposes the poisons were needed and employed their skill in mixing them in the pastry and other edibles in such small quantities as gradually to wear out the constitution of their victim mrs turner regularly furnished the poisoned articles to the underkeeper who placed them before overby 
not only his food but his drink was poisoned arsenic was mixed with the salt he ate and cantharides with the pepper all this time his health declined sensibly daily he grew weaker and weaker and with a sickly appetite craved for sweets and jellies rochester continued to condole with him and anticipated all his wants in this respect sending him abundance of pastry and occasionally partridges and other game and young pigs with the sauce for the game mrs turner mixed a quantity of cantharides and poisoned the pork with lunar caustic as stated on the trial overby took in this manner poison enough to have poisoned twenty men but his constitution was strong and he still lingered franklin the apothecary confessed that he prepared with dr foreman seven different sorts of poison viz aquafortis arsenic mercury powder of diamonds lunar caustic great spiders and cantharides overby held out so long that rochester became impatient and in a letter to lady essex expressed his wonder that things were not sooner dispatched orders were immediately sent by lady essex to the keeper to finish with the victim at once overby had not been all this time without suspicion of treachery although he appears to have had no idea of poison he merely suspected that it was intended to confine him for life and to set the king still more bitterly against him in one of his letters he threatened rochester that unless he were speedily liberated he would expose his villainy to the world he says you and i ere it be long will come to a public trial of another nature drive me not to extremities lest i should say something that both you and i should repent whether i live or die your shame will never die but ever remain to the world to make you the most odious man living i wonder much you should neglect him to whom such secrets of all kinds have passed be these the fruits of common secrets common dangers sir thomas overby all these remonstrances and hints as to the dangerous secrets in his keeping were ill calculated to serve him with a man so reckless as lord rochester they were more likely to cause him to be sacrificed than to be saved rochester appears to have acted as if he thought so he doubtless employed the murderer's reasoning that dead men tell no tales and whether receiving letters of his description he complained to his paramour of the delay weston was spurred on to consummate the atrocity and the patience of all parties being exhausted a dose of corrosive sublimate was administered to him in october sixteen thirteen which put an end to his sufferings after he had been for six months in their hands on the very day of his death and before his body was cold he was wrapped up carelessly in a sheet and buried without any funeral ceremony in a pit within the precincts of the tower sir anthony weldon in his court and character of james i gives a somewhat different account of the closing scene of this tragedy he says franklin and weston came into overby's chamber and found him in infinite torment with contention between the strength of nature and the working of the poison and it became very like that nature and gotten the better of his contention by the thrusting out of boils blotches and blains they fearing it might come to light by the judgment of physicians the foul play that had been offered him consented to stifle him with the bedclothes which accordingly was performed and so ended his miserable life with the assurance of the conspirators that he died by the poison none thinking otherwise than these two murderers the sudden death the indecent haste of the funeral and the non-holding of an inquest upon the body strengthened the suspicions that were afloat 
rumor instead of whispering began to speak out and the relatives of the deceased openly expressed their belief that their kinsman had been murdered but rochester was still all-powerful at court and no one dared to utter a word to his discredit shortly afterwards his marriage with the countess of essex was celebrated with the utmost splendour the king himself being present at the ceremony it would seem that overby's knowledge of james's character was deeper than rochester had given him credit for and that he had been a true prophet when he predicted that his marriage would eventually estrange james from his minion at this time however rochester stood higher than ever in the royal favor but it did not last long conscience that busy monitor was at work the tongue of rumor was never still and rochester who had long been a guilty became at last a wretched man his cheeks lost their color his eyes grew dim and he became moody careless and melancholy the king seeing him thus took at length no pleasure in his society and began to look about for another favorite george villiers duke of buckingham was the man to his mind quick-witted handsome and unscrupulous the two latter qualities alone were sufficient to recommend him to james i in proportion as the influence of rochester declined that of buckingham increased a falling favorite has no friends and rumor wagged her tongue against rochester louder and more pertinaciously than ever a new favorite too generally endeavors to hasten by a kick the fall of the old one and buckingham anxious to work the complete ruin of his forerunner in the king's good graces encouraged the relatives of sir thomas overby to prosecute their inquiries into the strange death of their kinsman james was rigorous enough in the punishment of offences when he was not himself involved he piqued himself moreover on his dexterity of unravelling mysteries the affair of sir thomas overby found him congenial occupation he sent to work by ordering the arrest of sir jarvis elwes james at his early stage of the proceedings does not seem to have been aware that rochester was so deeply implicated struck with horror at the atrocious system of slow poisoning the king sent for all the judges according to sir anthony weldon he knelt down in the midst of them and said my lords the judges it is lately come to my hearing that you have now in examination a business of poisoning lord in what a miserable condition shall this kingdom be the only famous nation for hospitality in the world if our tables should become such a snare that none could eat without danger of life and that italian custom should be introduced among us therefore my lords i charge you as you will answer it at that great and dreadful day of judgment that you examine it strictly without favor affection or partiality and if you shall spare any guilty of this crime god's curse light on you and your posterity and if i spare any that are guilty god's curse light on me and my posterity forever duke of buckingham the imprecation fell but too surely upon the devoted house of stuart the solemn oath was broken and god's curse did light upon him and his posterity the next person arrested after sir jarvis elwes was weston the underkeeper then franklin and mrs turner and lastly the earl and countess of somerset to which dignity rochester had been advanced since the death of overby weston was first brought to trial public curiosity was on the stretch nothing else was talked of and the court on the day of trial was crowded to suffocation 
the state trials report that lord chief justice coke laid open to the jury the baseness and cowardliness of poisoners who attempt that secretly against which there is no means of preservation or defence for a man's life and how rare it was to hear of any poisoning in england so detestable it was to our nation but the devil had taught divers to be cunning in it so that they can poison in what distance of space they please by consuming the nativum calidum or humidum radicale in one month two or three or more as they list which they four manner of ways to do execute viz haustu gustu odore and contactu lord coke when the indictment was read over weston made no other reply than lord have mercy upon me lord have mercy upon me on being asked how he would be tried he refused to throw himself upon a jury of his country and declared that he would be tried by god alone in this he persisted for some time the fear of the dreadful punishment for contumacy footnote the punishment for the contumacious was expressed by the words onere frigore et fame by the first was meant that the culprit should be extended on his back on the ground and weights placed over his body gradually increased until he expired sometimes the punishment was not extended to this length and the victim being allowed to recover underwent the second portion the frigore which consisted in his standing naked in the open air for a certain space in the sight of all the people the third or fame was more dreadful the statute saying that he was to be preserved with the coarsest bread that could be got and water out of the next sink or puddle to the place of execution and that day he had water he should have no bread and the day he had bread he should have no water and in his torment he was to linger as long as nature would hold out and footnote induced him at the length to plead not guilty and take his trial in due course of law all the circumstances against him were fully proved and he was found guilty and executed at tyburn mrs turner franklin and sir jarvis elwes were also brought to trial found guilty and executed between the nineteenth of october and the fourth of december sixteen fifteen but the grand trial of the earl and countess of somerset did not take place till the month of may following on the trial of sir jarvis elwes circumstances had transpired showing a guilty knowledge of the poisoning on the part of the earl of northampton the uncle of lady somerset and the chief falconer sir thomas monson the former was dead but sir thomas monson was arrested and brought to trial it appeared however that he was too dangerous a man to be brought to the scaffold he knew too many of the odious secrets of james i and his dying speech might contain disclosures which would compromise the king to conceal old guilt it was necessary to incur new the trial of sir thomas monson was brought to an abrupt conclusion and himself set at liberty already james had broken his oath he now began to fear that he had been rash in engaging so zealously to bring the poisoners to punishment that somerset would be declared guilty there was no doubt and that he looked for pardon and impunity was equally evident to the king somerset while in the tower asserted confidently that james would not dare to bring him to trial in this he was mistaken but james was in an agony what the secret was between them will now never be known with certainty but it may be surmised some have imagined it to be the vice to which the king was addicted while others have asserted that it related to the death of prince henry 
a virtuous young man who had held somerset in especial abhorrence this prince died early unlamented by his father and as public opinion whispered at the time poisoned by somerset probably some crime or other lay heavy upon the soul of the king and somerset his accomplice could not be brought to public execution with safety hence the dreadful tortures of james when he discovered that his favorite was so deeply implicated in the murder of overby every means was taken by the agonizing king to bring the prisoner into what was called a safe frame of mind he was secretly advised to plead guilty and trust to the clemency of the king the same advice was conveyed to the countess bacon was instructed by the king to draw up a paper of all the points of mercy and favor to somerset which might result from the evidence and somerset was again recommended to plead guilty and promised that no evil should ensue to him the countess was first tried she trembled and shed tears during the reading of the indictment and in a low voice pleaded guilty on being asked why sentence of death should not be passed against her she replied meekly i can much aggravate but nothing extenuate my fault i desire mercy and that the lords will intercede for me with the king sentence of death was passed upon her next day the earl was brought to trial he appears to have mistrusted the promises of james and he pleaded not guilty with a self-possession and confidence which he felt probably from his knowledge of the king's character he rigorously cross-examined the witnesses and made a stubborn defense after a trial which lasted eleven hours he was found guilty and condemned to the felon's death the countess of somerset whatever may have been the secrets between the criminal and the king the latter notwithstanding his terrific oath was afraid to sign the death warrant it might perchance have been his own the earl and countess were committed to the tower where they remained for nearly five years at the end of this period to the surprise and scandal of the community and the disgrace of its chief magistrate they both received the royal pardon but were ordered to reside at a distance from the court having been found guilty of felony the estates of the earl had become forfeited but james granted him out of their revenues an income of four thousand pounds per annum shamelessness could not go further of the afterlife of these criminals nothing is known except that the love they had formerly borne each other was changed into aversion and that they lived under the same roof for months together without the interchange of a word the exposure of their atrocities did not put a stop to the practice of poisoning on the contrary as we shall see hereafter it engendered that insane imitation which is so strange a feature of the human character james himself is supposed with great probability to have fallen victim to it in the notes to harris's life and writings of james i there is a good deal of information on the subject the guilt of buckingham although not fully established rests upon the circumstances of suspicion stronger than have been sufficient to lead hundreds to the scaffold his motives for committing the crime are stated to have been a desire of revenge for the coldness with which the king in the latter years of his reign began to regard him his fear that james intended to degrade him and his hope that the great influence he possessed over the mind of the heir apparent would last through a new reign if the old one were brought to a close end of chapter three part one recording by matt mark graff